My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with female and female-identified entrepreneurs, founders, co-founders, business owners, and industry gurus. These podcasts speak with women and women-identified individuals across all industries in order to shed light for those just getting into the entrepreneurial game as well as those deeply embedded within it. Histories, current companies, and lessons learned are explored in the conversations I have with these insightful and talented powerhouses. The series is designed to investigate a female and female-identified perspective in what has largely been a male-dominated industry in the USA to date. I look forward to contributing to the national dialogue about the long overdue change of women in American business arenas and in particular entrepreneurial roles. You can contact me via my media company website, wild.agency, that's W-I-L-D-E dot agency, or my personal website, patriciacathleen.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi everyone and welcome back. This is your host Patricia and today I am sitting down with Cherie Engel. Cherie is a playwright, freelance writer, and teaching artist with a literary nonprofit, So Say We All. Welcome Cherie. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm so excited to have you on today. Um, for those of you listening, I attended a reading of Cherie's play that we will get into today um, entitled Tampons, Dead Dogs, and Other Disposable Things at La Jolla Playhouse in October 25th of this year, 2019. And um, I uh, reached out and convinced her to speak with us today. I'm so excited to get into everything with you, Cherie. Um, for everyone listening, I'm going to give you a quick by a roadmap of today's podcast, which follows our traditional roadmap for this series. And then I will give you a quick bio of Cherie, and then we will start with um, peppering her with questions. The roadmap of today's podcast will be an academic background and early professional life of Cherie, and then we'll turn to unpacking some of her professional and personal story, um, which is a really diversified and dynamic story. Then we'll turn to discussing specifically her play, Tampons, Dead Dogs, and Other Disposable Things, which I attended a um, reading to, and I have a myriad of questions for her about. And then we will shift our focus towards goals that Cherie may have for more plays, books, freelance writing, brand expansion, all of those things over the next three years. And then we'll wrap everything up with advice that she has for those who are looking to get involved with Cherie, um, kind of uh, mirror what she's done with her history and um, all of that good stuff. So a quick bio on Cherie herself. Cherie Engel is a teaching artist with the literary nonprofit, So Say We All, an organization helping individuals tell their true stories. Cherie tells her own stories while providing, uh, while provided any variation of seasonal coffee drink. She's also a member of La Jolla Playhouse's gang of veteran playwrights, a group of writers fused by their shared love of cheese and crackers. Cherie won the 2019 Bridge Award with her interestingly titled play, Tampon, Dead Dogs, and Other Disposable Things. Afraid this makes her sound as though she hates canines, you can find her awkwardly stopping strangers on the street to pet their dogs. Cherie also created the Fingerprint Project, a community art project addressing the silence surrounding sexual violence. This project inspired her new podcast, The Loudest, Softest Sound, 
an outlet for the secrets that need to be heard or told while providing the option of hiding storytellers' identities, coming out in January 2020. Having discovered her own voice through the arts, Cherie's work is driven by her deep personal understanding that storytelling can save lives. For more information on her podcast stories or events, visit shereengel.com. That is S-H-A-I-R-I-E-N-G-L-E.com. So Cherie, I am so excited to kind of get into um, everything. I look forward to uh, listening in um, as much as you're providing them with the loudest, softest sound. I know that's <laughs> a line from your play, which I really yeah. like. Um, your podcast series sounds amazing. I'll be looking for that in January 2020. But before we get into all of that, can you um, drop us into your academic background and early professional life following? Oh, well, what a twisted road this has been. Yeah. Um, I don't, <laughs> so I, I have never, I've never followed a traditional academic path. Um, I grew up in a household that uh, didn't necessarily support um, my continued education. And, um, but I always kind of had this thing inside of me that knew that I was searching for something. I just didn't know what. Mm -hmm. So I have um, a lot of classes under my belt um, and I only just received my uh, bachelor's degree about five years ago. Fantastic. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, but even even that um, wasn't really the destination. Um, what really happened, my, my real education, I think, came through just a series of experiences. Um, mm -hmm. I dropped out of college when I was 18. Um, I had my son, Tristan. And after, you know, I, I worked at a factory in the South. Um, I worked at a subway making sandwiches. And after a while, um, I just started to see my future kind of closing in on me and not really knowing where I was headed. Um, I decided to join the Air Force and specifically become an air traffic controller. Um, and the thing that that provided was this idea that I was very capable of a challenging environment, um, of, of doing things that scared me. Um, and so I spent six years in the Air Force and, uh, and then I, I separated um, honorably and came back to San Diego. And uh, I took an office job and I was working in a cubicle and um, <laughs> very, uh, very unsatisfying work. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, kind of, um, it's just one of those moments that you hear about, like the cliche midlife crisis where you realize that um, where you're headed is just straight to your grave. And mm -hmm. I was at a dinner party. I think that I'm going to be turning, you know, 37 that year. And I've been replaying in my head all of these different things that I was missing out in my life. And somebody mentioned that I was actually turning 36, not turning 37. And I've got my hands underneath the dinner table, using my fingers to count all of the years that I've been alive. And <laughs> it's when it dawned on me that I had a whole extra year. And yeah. um, so I decided to quit my job and go back to school for something that was a little bit more interesting. And uh, I dubbed it my gimme year. So I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. It's excellent. So, so I am. Um, I went back to a, it was a small private arts college here in San Diego, and it wasn't necessarily the work um, that inspired me so much as the people that I was introduced to. And um, 
the uh, dean, I got a chance to know her pretty well, um, but she actually asked me to apply for an internship at the San Diego Repertory Theater as a graphic designer. And so I applied and the first day of my internship was on my birthday. Um, and so I decided since the gimme year had been such a successful year for me, I was going to continue this pattern for the rest of my life. So um, I decided there that I would start theming my years and I would come up with a series of tasks to uh, kind of challenge myself to grow in whatever specific area yeah. um, was the theme that year. And so that first year, it was the year of my voice. And um, this was so, after the gimme year? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, okay. and so I started at um, San Diego Repertory Theater, and it was the first time that I had read a play and had a chance to see how they are developed. And um, my eyes were just wide open, and I fell in love instantly. Um, I love the collaboration and the yeah, just the amazing ability to tell powerful stories. Um, so I, uh, yeah, so I um, went through the year of my voice, but during that year, I think the biggest moment in terms of education was that I had stumbled upon a uh, storytelling event here in San Diego. So say we all, um, yeah. it's a little dive bar in South Park, a small neighborhood and cash only. And you mm -hmm. go in and they select um, about seven or 10 people to tell their stories um, on the last Thursday of every month. And if your story is selected, they provide you writing coaches and performance coaches to help you build your story and tell, the, tell what you need to tell. And so I, um, I decided that one of my tasks for the year of my voice was to tell my very first difficult story. Yeah. And um, so I, uh, I wrote it and it was selected. And then for a month, I worked on my voice and prepared myself to stand in front of a microphone um, in front of strangers to tell a very difficult truth. And, so was, um, this a, was it considered a short story by you? What kind of a format was it written in? Uh, monologue. Uh, they are, they're all true stories. Um, it's kind of a requirement, um, and, although we bend it sometimes. Um, and yeah, they so they the coaches to help you in order to prepare for the reading of the story. Right, right. And so, yeah, so I was actually um, serendipitously assigned um, a writing coach who's an amazing uh, director and performer here in San Diego. Um, he heads up intermission productions, and she she was the perfect person to help me tell this story. Um, it was a story about me confronting my abuser uh, when I was in my early 20s, um, a man who had tormented me from the age of eight until I was 15. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I had ever said the words out loud to anybody other than very close friends and family. Um, and it was terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Um, and what happened after that um, was pretty phenomenal. As soon as I left the stage, um, I felt completely numb and didn't really process what had happened for me. Um, 
it was the next morning. It, it just, I just sensed it in my body. Um, it wasn't that a, a weight had been lifted or anything like that. It was more of a, um, a sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and in the following weeks, um, I became more and more interested in this feeling that I had, um, that was just kind of starting to blossom. And so that was when I, uh, started the fingerprint project. Um, I had been in my garage painting and maybe had a couple of glasses of wine, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, uh, I had been leaving my fingerprint on a canvas and I noticed how the first fingerprint was this bright red, you know, print. And then as it, as I kept, um, marking my finger on the canvas, it just dissipated the paint. And in the way that I first saw it, it looked almost like a, a sound wave with that first initial print being very strong and angry and loud. And it just kind of echoed out from there. And to me, it looked like what had been going on as soon as I was chosen for this story and started talking to people about this performance that I had ahead of me, people started telling me their own stories and it surprised me. Um, how many, how many of us have experienced silence in a way where you are in a bubble and you don't feel like any other person has ever experienced, um, this form of trauma and that you are alone and an oddball and your symptoms, your your fears, um, all of the things that kind of surface as a result of this need to stay hidden because you feel mm-hmm. shame around them. And just understanding how many men and women are out there that have similar experiences um, was very upsetting. But at the same time, I didn't understand why I had been so quiet for so long when there was this this sense of relief of having been heard mm-hmm. and um, and I just wanted to kind of continue that. So I quickly posted this event on Facebook where I decided that I was going to um, set this canvas up in a public spot and just invite anybody that had experienced um, any type of violence to come and just leave a print on the board. And uh, I just stayed there all day that first time. And a lot of people came up to ask what it was about. Um, I had a chance to share my own story. But a lot of times, people, it seemed like they they really needed something simple to break their own silence. And um, so it was just really a powerful, powerful thing to watch. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, as you're saying this, it's interesting. um, And I know that this is kind of the trajectory and the road that is, is leading us towards your play, but you know, kind of discussing this abusive silence that prevents um, self-truth that heals, you know, victims from um, entering into 
the dialogue is reminiscent for me of um, how your main character repeatedly is, you know, and we'll, we'll get into the structure of the play, but repeatedly silencing herself from actually getting into the story. I mean, the, the majority of the play is, you know, with her therapist, you know, talking about how, oh, I know you, you want me to get into it. I don't even know why I need to. It's just these, these constant diatribes and this, the play kind of unfolds under this um, avoiding of, of talking about the final, you know, the final point or the final action of the play. But um, it's interesting because it seems like a, a point of, of silence too, that she's silencing herself or, or silencing, moving back away. And so you having this earlier pre-writing the play experience of, you know, having a silence and then finally putting voice to what you had and then living in that reality right? That truth yeah. that, that comes about when you actually put it out there in your voice in the universe. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was kind of the birthplace um, for some of the, the dialogue that you wrote into um, tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable things. Did you find your, well, first of all, did the story in the monologue format that you had at the Cash Only Pub, um, did that turn into tampons? Which it's been shortened by the La Jolla Playhouse as tampons, but tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable <laughs> things. Did that turn into that, or was it a story from within that personal monologue that turned into tampons? So, um, what's really interesting is that I am, um, you know, my my path as a writer, and I think that this story is also it's not just talking about therapy. It's also talking about the journey that I've had to walk to get to myself as, as a more realized person. Um, that story, the one that I told many years ago um, at uh, So Say We All, I actually just reread it not too long ago and it still gets to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, that is not the tampons and dead dog story. Okay. However, um, about a year ago, I had a table read and it was one of those table reads that I know a lot of writers go through where you walk away and you just question life itself. <laughs> and, um, it, it wasn't the story that I was trying to tell. There was, there was, I think, a little bit too much dishonesty in it still. And yeah. so I went home and I started pulling out my own therapy notebooks um, and all of my, you know, my own work that I've done, um, kind of processing my own personal history. And I started pulling out details, um, the most difficult details, um, and injecting them into the memory of the character in this play. And, um, and even still, when I, when I hear or see certain gestures, you know, as we're working on this play, um, it, they're intense. Um, yeah. So it's, but, you know, as I've kind of mentioned to you before, um, you know, after, after the reading, it's, it's not about trying to conquer my demons. It's about trying to kind of find a realistic and honest way of residing alongside them mm -hmm. and um and to keeping that you know the power dynamics where they should be um so yeah it's uh 
my own personal history is in there, but it's, it's hidden where I don't think you could really see it. However, <laughs> if I may, mm -hmm. um, the whole premise of the story came um, after the year of my voice was the year of my strength. And uh, I went on a solo backpacking trip and, okay. and it was, um, you know, again, um, just kind of going off of my gut and my instincts that I needed to do something. And it, that was inspired by a moment after a very intense period of therapy where I was sitting in my shower, bawling my eyes out. It was that kind of cry where it just comes through you. Mm -hmm. um, almost like you're just throwing up and um, just feeling exhausted in my body and my spirit, my mind. Um, and uh, I all of a sudden just remembered this moment of when I had been um, a little girl. I, uh, I grew up on the East Coast with my mother and my stepfather, who happened to be a Baptist preacher, um, who was my abuser. Mm. And my father lived out here on the West Coast, and we would spend our summers um, with my father. And it was just a great break from all of the chaos that was going on at home. Yeah. And uh, my father um, really loved the outdoors. And so we were up in Yosemite hiking, and I, I have this very vivid memory of hiking up the trail ahead of my dad and him yelling after me, um, saying, look at that girl go, look how strong she is. <laughs> and I remember that feeling that I had as that little girl. And that day in the shower, I was thinking about that, and it had occurred to me that she kept going up the trail and I had veered off into the woods hmm. and I was suddenly overcome with this great urge to go catch up to her. And I needed to physically close that metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So that's when I decided that I was going to go on my solo backpacking trip. And, nice. uh, and I did. And, um, and as I was driving up the 395, um, I didn't go to Alaska. I went to, um, uh, just outside of Bishop, there's a uh, Lake Sabrina, and uh, we can hike up into the uh, the mountains from there. Hmm. But um, on the way up, I was listening to this podcast, and I don't remember what the story was about, but it was this older gentleman that said, "In order to get anything, you have to give something up." And for whatever reason, the whole time I was hiking up this steep climb, it just kept repeating over and over and over in my head: "In order to get anything, you have to give something up." Do you agree with it? Uh, I do and I don't. Um, I think that sometimes mm -hmm. there are things that pop into our head and stick with us and they serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's always the case. Yeah, I think it's actually, um, and I think, you know, I could spend some time with it and massage it and make it pretty and make it something that I agreed with. But the first, my first impulse when I heard that was, that's what I've been told as a woman since the day I could leave the house, you know, was that I had to give something if I was yeah. going to get anything in this world and preferably give more than I get. That was the consensus of the world that I walked into. And so yeah. part of me, you know, you describing an old man on the podcast kind of proffering that up. I'm like, yeah, I think old men have been telling me that for the past 42 years. 
You know, there's a a moment there, but I think I could also make it pretty. I just think it's an interesting thing to use as a mantra as you're hiking up a trail, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What was your relationship with that statement as it was going through your head? Um, I felt like I was, I was carrying something with me that, you know, I've had this thing inside of me that I've wanted to purge. And at that time I had this idea that I could purge it because I think a lot of, you know, my therapy was based around, you know, um, getting rid of my symptoms, um, getting rid of my pain as if it's somehow not a part of me. And, and that's been my journey over the last few years is trying to figure out what really is the deal with, you know, with the part of me that exists with this experience and the part of me that this idea of myself without that experience. Um, Mm. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Can I digress just a little bit? Yeah, please. You said something. Um, so just this last year, speaking of, you know, men kind of having conversations with you and giving you advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after I won this award, um, I was, you know, I had a lot of people in my ear about what I should or should not do now that I'm officially a playwright. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um this one particular person, um, a gentleman whose intentions I think were very, very good. I know that they're very good. Um, but he sat down and has sat me down and wanted to hear my whole story. Um, cause he has this idea that I have this, uh, you know, a powerful story that needs to be heard, yada, yada, yada. And mm-hmm. so I tell him, I tell him my experience uh, growing up and just how I've, come to myself as I know myself right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, and after I get done telling this story, he says, you know, that's, that's a really powerful and amazing, um, tale. Um, but the thing I think you need to work on is telling your story from a place of power. You're still telling your story coming from a place of something broken. And at the time, I just sat there mm-hmm. just listening to him. And that one sat with me for quite a few days. And, and I could sense in my gut that it just didn't fit what he said. <laughs> well, I just thought, I mean, it's remarkable that you met the owner of power and he got to show you exactly how you could use it and employ it. Like who deemed this individual <laughs> the decider of what power was or is yeah. and that you yeah. were not yourself in your own existence, exhibiting power, you know, that definition. Exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I I started to think, I really think that it has to do with the fact that I was crying when I was telling my story that I was showing my pain. Mm -hmm. And then just that week, um, I had been coaching a woman who is going to be telling her own personal story of pain and she kept apologizing about crying or getting upset. Mm-hmm. And I stopped her and, you know, like, why, why would you apologize for that? And this is a part of your story and this is a part of your truth. And that right there is, yeah. and, um, and so that's how I kind of answered my own question. Um, and I think that, you know, fairly recently I've discovered that my vulnerability and my pain and my hurt over 
my experiences, um, sharing that and being able to express that um, yeah. is, is definitely um, a powerful act. I find it to be the ultimate power. You know, um, it, having the courage and stamina to um, exhibit and then stand in the face of your own exhibition of any painful account that you've had is unnervingly hard for me to, you know, comprehend. And I'm big on um, physical and emotional displays of power that are anything but that, you know? So I'm very clear on the, the pillars that describe what power is on a very traditional masculine sense. Mm -hmm. And um, you kind of just captured what we were talking about prior in our pre-production of this podcast. I told you that um, de uh, tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable things were, it was, by far, and I, I'm an avid theater goer, and um, I come from a family of writers and playwrights, and so I, I read a great deal in that area as well, but it was by far the most difficult production for me to, um, it was a reading. I can't imagine if it had been a play, but um, because I think my comfort level, I would have held my breath through some of it, but mm -hmm. I am very rarely confronted with something that is both um, artistically moving and uh, on a literature scale, um, enthusiastic and creative, and then also uh, incredibly difficult to the point that I think about leaving and think I couldn't possibly. And it's, I just don't believe, I told you before we started that I, I'm not sure that line even exists anymore. I think it's what made old writers so great sometimes, you know, with that, that difficulty. Um, and that's what it did for me. And what you just described, you know, ultimate power or the power that you were receiving at that moment was being able to describe it and to honor it with the accompanying emotions that it had and then sit in the face of that, you know, and I think that that's what we should immediately call up that gentleman and tell him that we've just discovered the true definition of power. And so he can now go forward and evangelize and really share the message that you are the one exhibiting the proper form of power because it was it was incredibly powerful and daunting for me to sit through your reading. Um, uh, not, it's not the subject matter. It's not all of those things as women, like we would be fools to be, uh, you know, uh, our friends, our sisters, our mothers, our cousins have all had trauma in that area. It's, um, I think it was the truth. I think it was sitting with, you know, your character's truth was, um, and this was kind of enumerated ironically by, um, it's not, is it Jack? Who's the male character? Uh, Joe. <laughs> Joe, sorry. Jack is her son. Yeah. Um, the character of Joe, that particular reader, that actor, he said afterwards that, you know, um, part of his, his difficulty with the character was the evolution of that character and yeah. what, it, what it eventually became and how, how he as a person was like, this yeah. is going to be a hard read you know, yeah. because of where he had to go and where, how he had to take the audience with him through this disguise. Yeah. And, um, and that kind of a um, sitting, so I, I feel like your characters had their own honesty. That's, I think, what shocked me about the play. I think most of the time I'm looking at the narrative of a play. I'm looking at, you know, the overarching lessons, the artistic angles, the the theoretical backgrounds, at who are the, what pull are they pulling from? You know, where are they developing these characters from? But the characters had like a genuine sense of honesty to me that I just found kind of daunting. You know, even the play, um, the stage instructions, it I just really believed them. It was like this 
authentic voice without pretense. It was really designed. I couldn't figure out how you had done it or how you had imparted that with me after hearing it. But it, I did feel like the characters themselves were being honest about their role. And that's a very complex and dynamic relationship to unpack as, as a viewer. I do want to climb into um, uh, writing your trajectory. So I want to get into some of the logistics before we climb into the, the meat of the story. Um, when did you start writing it? And what was the kind of timeline with between that as to when you, you did your first read? Who was the group you were working with? Like, let's just do all of those little details really quickly. Oh, yeah, um, it's been a little over two years. Um, the plays actually started off with me trying to um, <laughs> have a conversation between uh, somebody that had assaulted a woman and coming to apologize to her. Mm. I could not write that story because I don't know that story. And there was no way that I could ever be honest about that story, not knowing anything about that story. <laughs> so um who tasked you with that? Was that just something, an exercise you put on yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, uh, um, you know, I've, uh, I started going to uh, La Jolla Playhouse um, as part of a writing group for veterans. And really, that's, that's where I started to become very brave with my work. Um, because, you know, it was, we'd sit around and we'd share stories. And they were very difficult stories, um, but there is a sense of honesty at that table that, um, you know, really, it was, it was like a responsibility that we had to be honest at that table. And, um, and I feel so very fortunate. I was very intimidated the first time I sat at that table, everybody else, they're all writers. I, I did not consider myself a writer at all. Um, I definitely felt like I didn't belong and uh, they'd figure it out pretty quickly. Um, but we all showed up with pages and we got to work and they had no time for my uh, insecure bullshit. <laughs> so, nice. yeah. Um, so yeah, so I started, you know, writing that story um, and, and then abandoned it pretty quickly. And then I decided that I was going to start writing a little bit closer to the, what I was experiencing. And um, what I was experiencing was after I'd gone into the mountain on my solo backpacking trip, I decided that it was time for me to go to the VA and start following through on um, a PTSD treatment program that I had started and stopped many times over. Um, so while I was going to that, um, I was also attending these writing groups at La Jolla Playhouse. And so as I was uncovering and dealing with a lot of ugly things, I was able to start processing that very honestly on the pages. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the, the first, the first um, iteration of this play um, was pretty far removed from where it is right now. Um, but my desire and what I was trying to say was very clear early on, that I wanted to speak honestly about what it means to be a survivor of trauma. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be honest about 
my experience and um, because you know as I've worked with other people telling their stories and have worked on telling my own stories um, you know it's they all vary but when we can be really honest about the things that scare us most I think we find common ground and it frees us to to share um, and uh, expose some of these ugly things yeah. that are kind of hiding. Was it so, so? Was it two years from writing the first draft until winning the 2019 Bridge Award? Um, I would say it was a little bit more than two years. Um, you know, just because those first few months, um, I don't remember the exact day that I had started, um, but maybe about two and a half years at most. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, I want to kind of cover, I want to drop into the play or your synopsis of it after kind of looking at the award. Can you tell us about receiving the Bridge Award or how you applied for that, um, the reception <laughs> of it? You flew out to New York to receive it or no? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, it's actually quite an amazing gift. Um, I uh, So... November 4th of last year is when I had a, um, a reading, a very small reading at La Jolla Playhouse of this play. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't even tell any of my friends or family to come. I, um, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I just wanted to experience it for myself. And, mm -hmm. and that was my accomplishment. That was it. Um, but I continued to work on it after that. Um, it was actually... Um, one of my uh, veteran writing cohorts, uh, Francisco, that told me that I needed to start getting my work out there um, because I have been sitting on a lot of writing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, he's, you know, retired Marine and you listen to retired Marines. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I submitted my play just a handful of hours before the deadline and um and it you know but i will say that november 4th of last year after that reading um i took my notes and the cover page of of that play from that day i had framed in my house immediately because i understood that i had overcome something really yeah. amazing and um and it was a very private thing so um, I'm submitting this play for the bridge and I'm looking at that little framed picture and I just think it's amazing that I have a, you know, close to finish work. And um, yeah. so I, it went out of my mind because I did not think for a million years that, um, that what I had written would get any attention. And um, so, yeah, so I received a phone call telling me that I was a finalist and, um, and then I found out who the judges were and, <laughs> and that was just amazing to know that it was being read by people that I did not know. Absolutely. Um, and then, uh, the day that, um, they called to announce the winner, I, uh, I took the day off from work and I went to the San Diego public library and I was in the elevator on the way up <laughs> and had to get off on the fourth floor. And, um, yeah, it was a really beautiful moment. Um, Erica Newhouse, the uh, founder of the Bridge Award, um, she spoke to me for some time on the phone. But uh, 
Tony Kushner was the final judge and he had written something about it and she read it to me over the phone and it was a really beautiful moment um, because people had told me that they loved it and you know they had said other things but what he what he said um made me feel seen in a way that i had never felt before Mm -hmm. and um it was just a really beautiful moment and um and then i called my dad right away but part of their part of that award was to put me in touch with amazing prolific artists playwrights writers um people that i think would have intimidated the hell out of me had i met them you know just a short while before and yeah. uh um and i you know a lot of times um i was meeting with people and i didn't know who they were and um which was <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh you know you just you start talking about your process as a writer and your challenges and you find out that these are these are problems that we all kind of suffer from and at the end of the day these amazing and prolific artists are suffering from the same ailments that i am <laughs> and same struggles yeah. and so um that was that was an amazing gift absolutely um, when did you yeah, decide so to re ha have a, a rereading of it was that done for you the the second one that i attended just this past october yeah Lo yeah la jolla playhouse um asked if they could do a reading um so after the award the bridge award yeah yeah um uh, jacole uh, kitchen the artistic director at la jolla playhouse actually flew out to um to new york i had a reading of it at the public uh -huh. and so she was there and um so what would what would be the next step like i'm not even certain how it goes from reading to production are you introduced are you interested in pushing it through to production absolutely um i uh the reason why I want it to go to production is because of the conversations that I get to have with people after the story. Um, I think my two favorite moments out of all the moments have been women coming up to me and just saying the words, I felt seen. Mm. And um, that uh, is just incredible. Um, but I don't know, much like everything else, I don't know what I'm doing until I get there. And um, you know, I'm fortunate to have um, an amazing group of people that are very supportive of you know, my work and this play. Mm -hmm. And so um, yeah, I have uh, um, two directors that are interested in it and um, are looking to shop it. And um, I actually just sent my latest draft out yesterday. Nice. Which felt really good. Um, Will you start work on other writing? Will you start on your next project, on your next play or your next book while you're kind of looking at putting this in production or will you do one thing at a time? No, no, I've already started. Um, as soon as uh, <laughs> I, I constantly have a thousand different stories going on in my head um, mm -hmm. and I just don't have enough time in the day. So um, I've already started working on um, my, my next few projects. Um, but the, uh, so I have my, my second play that 
I think my first round, my first draft will be done in a couple of months and we'll be ready for a reading. Um, nice. I think the end of December. And, uh, and then this, this year, um, I'm going to be uh, working on my very first screenplay. And um, I'm incredibly excited about it. Um, this last year I was commissioned um, to write a 10 minute play for the Without Walls Festival here in San Diego. And through that story, uh, I was able to start unpacking a lot of my experience in the Air Force. And mm -hmm. so I'm looking forward to to sharing those experiences um, and telling the story of a female combat vet, which is a story I don't think we get to hear enough of. Hardly ever, hardly yeah, ever, so, particularly yeah. in, you know, in the theater arts and I, I think on screen as well. And it needs to be told, you know, um, honoring our service members cannot be done enough. Um, I'll let everyone know when we've done it too much. It's never going to happen. But <laughs> female service members, you know, just the the unspoken heroes. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a story that is wildly untapped, and I I, I can't wait for your analysis of it and for your words to reach it. Um, I'm wondering, do you want to give a synopsis of tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable things? Do you have one? Do you have like this kind of um, sentiment regarding the storyline that you can give the audience listening today? You know, I've been um, I've been really struggling with that because, mm -hmm. you know, the way that this play works, it works the best when we don't really understand what we're going through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, I think. I still have yet to really land on exactly the right words for it. Um, okay, I sense that, and I didn't yeah. want to kind of get too much into the characters because it is part, at least for me, I went in blind. Um, I read a review that said nothing about the storyline, which gave right. me an idea that you were not meant to. And, yeah. um, and I don't know, I don't know if my, you know, personal reception was because I went in blind, that could be argued for every artistic endeavor. Someone yeah. can say, don't know anything about it, but we can't all do that. Cause we got to know a little bit, but with this particular thing, I kind of think like, no, you just have to kind of go into, you know, you can know a little bit about you and the inspiration that we've kind of uncovered here today. But yeah. I think it's just, it's kind of imperative that people look at it, um, you know, that they go in uh, a little bit more under read than not. And that's never my advice. I'm, I'm a big researcher. Um, yeah. And to that end, I wonder if you, you know, whatever happens with production and things of that nature, if you would ever consider doing um, a reading um, either on YouTube or as a podcast of the play, would you ever consider putting it out on any other medium other than the stage? Um, yeah, actually, I, I've considered that. Um, and I have a group of friends here in San Diego filmmakers that are also interested in, in that particular conversation. Um, so um, I am. And I think, again, the thing that drives me is just being able to reach people and tell a story that I think needs to be told um, yeah. so that other people can tell theirs. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, I even have this insane idea of making it a site-specific play. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. But, um, what, what do you mean by that? You mean a, yeah, I like, like an that. actual um, going on a little bit of a hike. Um, not, not an insane hike, but a, um, an easy, short hike through nature to kind of 
experience these snippets of the play as you walk along. That would be amazing. I so. fully endorse that. That's, you know, I, no, I think it's, um, it, it spans genres, to be honest. You're taking um, theater and, and pushing it into um, like living art. Like, I, I think you're really questioning the lines between the two different genres of performance art and theater. I, I fully support that. I think that would be fantastic as an art historian. Like, I think yeah. that. that sounds like something that needs to be done, particularly with this play, because it, yeah. it does work, obviously. It almost begs it, now that you've yeah. said it. I'm like, it's yeah. asking for it. Yeah. That would be fantastic. So looking forward, um, you've mentioned um, kind of in our talk that you know, you're, you're looking at production of tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable things. You're starting work on your next play. It sounds like the reading should be coming out in December or something through the La Jolla Playhouse, I'm assuming. And you're working on your first screenplay. Um, do you have, like, a, when you look at your life as a writer and all of the projects that you're doing, do you look forward? I mean, you have the year. What year are we in? We have the year of your voice. <laughs> what is this year? Do you have an idea of what next year will be? And will that drive your goals? Um, yeah, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm in the year of bravery. Um, okay. And my task was to actually agree to do a lot of things that terrify me. Um, and the uh, the Bridge Award opens up on December first, which is actually my birthday. Um, so I am. Um, I, that was my first act of bravery this last year. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm coming to a close of a very successful year of bravery. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and it was right after I got back from New York the first round. Um, I sat with uh, Adam Driver and Joanne Tucker and Stephen Belber and um, just a few other just amazing artists um, for a reading of this play at Juilliard. And I was just high on all of this artistic energy. And uh, as soon as I got home, I went uh, camping with the family. <laughs> and um, I took a little run through the woods and sat down and um, next year's theme came to me. Um, next year is going to be the year of the screen. <laughs> I did and, not uh, see that coming. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, I, uh, and you know, you, you saw the play or yes. listened to it. And so you probably have a better understanding than your listeners might of what that actually means. I do. Um, and I so, do. Uh, the first task is to um, to see uh, tampons, dead dogs, and other disposable things staged somewhere, somehow. I will make it happen. And another part is working on this uh, podcast, um, The Loudest, Softest Sound, um, so that I can help other people use their voices. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, the screenplay. Um, it's, I'm, I'm in love with this character, um, like I was in love with the main character of Tampons and Dead Dogs, and I cannot wait to share her with the world. Um, Absolutely. I'll be at the first reading. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Front row and center. I'll bring my crew with me as well. Well, as we wrap up today, um, I want to ask you, um, I always kind of draw a little picture for those who maybe don't know how I've received the past hour. Um, so if you uh, were walking down the street tomorrow and um, a woman or a female identified individual or a non-binary individual, essentially anyone other than a white man, if someone like that walked up to you and said, listen, 
um, I, I've, you know, I've, I've had kind of a diversified past. Um, I, I left college early. I did a bunch of um, interesting kind of odd jobs. I, I had a child. I returned to school. Then I turned back in. I served in the armed services. I did a bunch of things. And I think it's time for me to start like this creative writing endeavor. And I know there's something in me and I need to get it onto paper. What would what are the three top pieces of advice that you would give that person? <laughs> oh, man. To open up a Google Doc immediately and start writing the very first thing that comes to your mind and don't stop. Um, to allow everything to come out, everything. To never second guess how shitty something might be um, and to just really understand that any self-doubt that's going to arise is perfectly normal. Um, and another thing I think would be to look at your writing as kind of going into a rabbit hole with no bottom to it and trust yourself to go in as deep as you possibly can um, and know that through your writing, there are going to be questions that are unanswerable questions, but they're still worth exploring. Um, and then put yourself in the way of luck. <laughs> I yeah. think that um, I, I was uh, hiking with my kids one day and um, this swarm of ladybugs kind of came across this field and we were standing just like a million ladybugs all over the place and we're just standing trying to get them to land on us because we know that that means you know you're going to have something lucky is going to happen mm -hmm. but they weren't landing on us <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and so I um, I kind of looked far off in the distance and I saw that it was really um there was this little bit of um, a gully and they had kind of centralized um in this one area so mm -hmm. I was grabbing the kids and it's like one over here because sometimes you just have to put yourself in the way of luck and um and so I really I really think that going into spaces that scare you going into the spaces that you feel that you don't belong talking to people that you feel are more educated than you more that just come from a, a deeper understanding of the world than you don't ever make those assumptions mm -hmm. um because you will always be surprised by other people and ultimately yourself and I think those are the three things that have made so much of a difference for me. Absolutely. I have pour everything onto the page, leave nothing off, do it immediately. Number two, never second guess how wonderful or shitty what your writing is. Look at your writing as a rabbit hole and trust the journey and put yourself in the way of luck. <laughs> I love that. I love that. that those takeaways, those are um, really genuine. That last one in particular, uh, clever. And you can, you know, I, I think that the idea of waiting for something wonderful to happen while we all slave away is sometimes kind of silly. Like, go find wonderful things <laughs> and stand in front of them. I like that so much. The power is so reversed there with the idea of luck itself, you know, kind of controlling it is absolutely awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I want to thank you so much, Cherie, for your time today. I know you're busy, um, and uh, we all are, but 
I know that your schedule is uh, sensitive and I really appreciate you taking the time, um, inviting me out to see the reading of tampons, dead dogs and other disposable things. And um, yeah, just you uh, kind of going down this journey with me and um, all of your candor regarding your work. I know it's difficult, um, even when your work is based on being candid. <laughs> it's <ironic. laughs> But um, I really do appreciate your time today and speaking with us. Well, thank you so very much. It's been a joy. Absolutely. For everyone listening, you can um, reach out to Cherie and learn a little bit more about everything we talked about today. Again, at ShereeEngel.com, S-H-A-I-R-I-E-N-G-L-E.com. And thank you for giving us your time for the past hour. I appreciate it. And until we speak again, remember to always bet on yourself. Sláinte.